Their charm is non-existent. Years ago, they worked in radio. Today, they don't remember a moment of it. They are the only grown men ever to fail a preschool spelling test. Every time they go for a swim, women and children run for their lives. Alien abductors return them to Earth with the words, we do not understand, tattooed on their foreheads. If they were to give you directions, you'd end up at the closest pub, no matter where you really wanted to go. Their smell precedes them. The way of fart precedes watering eyes. They are the most interesting men in podcasting. Hey everybody, and welcome to this week's edition of the Mojo Radio Show, featuring the most interesting men in podcasting. If you were looking for the most interesting men in podcasting, stay thirsty, my friends, you've come to the right place. You've just found them. Was that AP? (laughs) That was AP. Did you like that? (laughs) It's not hard to write good material when you've got something to copy off. No, I have no doubt. I'm just, because I wasn't in the studio, I have no doubt that AP was in the studio, (laughs) in the booth, six-pack of Dos Equis going, yeah, let's get into it, let's do something. No, nothing will drag AP away from his glass of red, unfortunately, but, you know, he's still got it right. (laughs) Yeah, I I, I reckon we're going to test that assumption as well. Well, to bring everybody up to date, we are running a campaign to be the most interesting men in podcasting. <laughs> Thanks to our good friends at Doseki and Tim Tess. <laughs> but uh, our experiment to see whether Doseki are listening or not has not come to fruition. However, we hold out hope and we are staying thirsty, my friends. We're banging away with the email. We're knocking on their door. What did my old program director used to say? Said slipping notes under their door. We're doing everything we can. <laughs> it's an experiment. We're in, we're in beta. We're in Doseki beta, so it's uh, it's all yeah. good. Now we have got a cracking show ahead. We've got a bit of sport, a bit of sun. We're going rugby. We're going daylight. Uh, before we do that, we should check in with our friends, the Dead Daisies. We should. Again. Oh, I'm a bit sad this week, mate. I, I'm well, not sure that I can let this go. <laughs> I've, I've given you four weeks of playing with it, uh, but now yeah. is the time to give it away. I got a lovely email sent to the studio mm. uh, from Brian who said, and I quote, my younger brother used to be someone that I looked up to. He had more mojo than anyone I know. He was an absolute legend out on the town. Obviously a Doseki drinker. <laughs> Now, however, he recently married, not that's a problem, and has two kids, not that's a problem either, Uh, but has no more mojo, it's all gone. But he's changed his ways, seems to be having an awesome, but he's changed his ways and seems to be an awesome dad and an awesome husband, which is great. He loves his rock and roll, sweet, you come to the right place. Absolutely. And partying, but the mojo level is way down. Big respect to him, though, for putting his family first. 
that's from Brian, his bro. So, mate, that was the one we chose only because you mentioned all the things we love, which is going out and having a beer, rock and roll, family, kids, partying and mojo, all in the one paragraph. So, mate, uh, the Dead Daisies limited edition collector's pack is en route at our expense to you, Mm. mate, to give to your bro to fire up his mojo. It's a top, top prize. Yeah, just give it about six weeks for the mail to get there. (laughs) (laughs) A lot of our friends in Australia post. (laughs) Won't be seeing any cash from them this Christmas. Mojo Radio Show. This week we're going NFL. I don't think we've ever had NFL on our show before. No, I don't think we've... Well, we might have had shoulder pads. We've had a few high-powered women on, but I don't think we've had helmets in shoulder pads, have we? No, our guest this week is Dr Jen Welter, who some of you may have read about. There's been a lot of press about Dr Jen. Dr Jen is the first ever female to become a coach in the NFL for the Arizona Cardinals and also the first female to play running back in a professional football game during a couple of seasons ago. So this is a lady who has got a lot of firsts. Yeah, she's really breaking glass ceilings left, right and centre, isn't she? Well, I guess so. I, I, I think my feeling on this is that I I don't know the focus for our interview will be on sort of breaking glass ceilings. To me, it's a case of finally people recognising if you're the right person for the job, then you get the gig. Mm. So if Dr. Jen is the person who can bring something to the Arizona Cardinals more than the other people who put their hand up, then why wouldn't you give her the job? And for me, the real story, and we're going to ask Dr. Jen about this during the show, is who was the coach that actually had the guts to give her the job? I mean, that's the guy who had had the, the guts to make the right decision to put her in. He figured that Jen was the best qualified person for the job. Uh, but then you've got to face up to your board, selection panels, the, the fans, the other players, and go, mm. you know what, this is the right thing to do. This is the right person. Of course, then it comes down to, I guess, Dr. Jen doing the job. But, um, you know, the whole glass ceiling thing to me sounds a bit, if you're the right person, why wouldn't you get the job? Mm. But it doesn't seem to be the case with women most times, does it? It doesn't well. It, they, that's the appearance, anyway. Whether it be the truth, well, that's or my not. point. That's, yeah. that, that's where I think it all falls down. Mm. Is it shouldn't be? To me, it shouldn't be glass ceilings. To me, it should be whoever puts their hand up and can do the job the best, they get the job, regardless of mm. age, regardless of gender. If you can do the job, you get it. And yeah. I think things are starting to change now in that way. But. Full credit to the coach because he's the guy who's going to face everybody and say, why did you select that person for the job? And providing that person delivers, it's all good. It's gold. Absolutely. Well, we should get her on. Let's do it. So, Dr. Jen, welcome to the Mojo Radio Show. Happy to be here. You have got an amazing backstory, which we're going to get to. But right here today, when people ask you what you do, what do you say? I said I am a woman of about 47 jobs. Which is why I wore that number throughout my whole football career. That's interesting. I've noticed that through the videos that I saw. Is that something that normally happens where a player can wear a number through the career, even if they're in different teams? Um, They try to, but generally it is a bit of a challenge. The only time I didn't wear it was when I played for the U.S. national team. Is that because you don't get a choice of number then and you're just allocated? Uh, No, I think it's because the other girl who wore 47, Ninji Martin, is about a foot taller than me and they just went by height. (laughs) 
Now, you are very well recognised as the first female coach to ever coach in the NFL and with the Cardinals, and you're also the first female player to play running back in a professional game. Tell me, where did it start to become a dream that you could do this? It actually didn't. Um, you know, I just committed to play football as and take all the challenges that came my way. Um, I was never an advocate, particularly for women having to play football against men. Uh, but I like to say that God had a, a great sense of humor. You've said that when you were younger you did have this aspiration to play football, but you had to wait. And how long did you have to wait? Until after college. I played rugby in college because that was the closest that I could get to football. What a great choice of sport, though. Absolutely. I love rugby. I'm still a big advocate of rugby. I think that um, the state of American football would be much better if they tackled like rugby players. I tell you what, your seven your sevens team is uh, is doing what is getting better and better all the time. Yes, they definitely are. It's nice to see rugby developing in the state. Mm. It really had an impact on your playing style, didn't it, Jen? I mean, you have said a number of times that the tackling that you learnt in rugby was beneficial. Um, in the NFL, that it seemed to be a skill set that did you that played or did you well? Yes, it absolutely did. Um, being a relatively or actually a very undersized player, I was a great tackler because I kept my rugby fundamentals and hmm. added to that a whole lot of crazy with getting to wear pads and helmets. I was very fearless. Stick, hit, squeeze, drive. Is that what they taught you? Absolutely. There you go. Put their legs together and they will all go down. That's right. Absolutely. You can't run without legs, right? No, you can't. So, Jen- I think that that's actually something you'll see more prevalent in the States. As they become more and more educated, uh, they'll take the helmet out of the equation. Do you think so? I, I do. I think the helmet will be still present, yeah. but the tackling techniques that they're teaching mm-hmm. are not what they used to be, which it was like, face mask to chest. Oh, there you go. Being the first female coach ever for the Cardinals in the NFL, how how do you how do you personally describe your coaching style, Jen? I would say I'm very personal, um, a player's coach, somebody who looks to understand the people to help the player. Um, and somebody who's very fundamentals oriented. You've spoken about getting to know the player as a player. Is that something that you innately believe is true or is it something that you saw or admired in another coach and thought this is something that works? I would say that comes from my background in sports psychology, realizing Mm. that, you know, you had to recognize the differences in players and to know their skills and their personalities and them as a whole in order to have them perform optimally. You've got a master's degree in sports psych and a PhD in psychology. Um, Did you call upon a lot of those tools to sort of break into a male-dominated world? Like, was that, did you call upon the things that you'd learnt during your degree and so on that you could apply to yourself in breaking in and and being the first female? Absolutely. I think it played into everything every day. 
I think having a foundation in psychology is fundamental to being successful in working with people. So for me, it was understanding the implications of the situation on a big picture perspective and then always being attentive to the individual aspects um, and the player situations on a day-to-day basis. Give me an idea of, of a specific tool that you would normally use in psychology or sports psych that you would apply in this situation. Interpersonal communication skills, realizing, um, as I say, sometimes you have to be a great translator and realizing where messages are or are not hitting home and what somebody's learning style is, how do they communicate, what kind of feedback do they respond best to. Um, and just, you know, honestly, getting to know your players and realizing mm. that coaching is not one size fits all. So if we're, if we're in the locker room and you've got a variety of linebackers that you need to communicate with, and I, I say there's a listener who is facing the same thing in leadership in a corporate boardroom, that there might be five or six different people in their team. How, how do you specifically identify how you should talk to one player or one person in the boardroom as opposed to the other? Like what's, what's the thinking you go through to know where those trigger points are? Well, you have to pay attention to your individual interactions with them. You know, you won't know it until you know them. So how does one person respond to a situation versus another? Can you watch? I mean, we've all seen it, right? You ever had a, a conversation where you, you maybe weren't even in it. You were witness to a conversation and you watched somebody thinking that they were conveying one message and clearly it wasn't hitting home on the other, right? The person may be lost or mm. what they thought was positive feedback. They didn't take it that way. And so just learning how that, communication is interpreted, right? People don't hear things the same way. It goes through your own individual filter. So the better attention that you pay, the more likely you'll be able to reach that person. And it really is a learning process. And it's also being willing to invest your time into talking to that individual. Do you know them? Do you know, hey, what was your favorite coach and why? Or, you know, how did you feel after this conversation? Or, you know, what's going on with your li- in your life outside of the game? Because when you care about them as people, you can motivate them as players. Has curiosity always been part of your toolkit? I would say so. I think um, when you look at, at life as, you know, a puzzle and something that you are trying to put the pieces together, right, then you'll have a fresh perspective in things. You're not supposed to know all the answers. Sometimes you have to know what questions that other people have and, mm. and have the ability to answer those questions before they've been asked. I just mm. like to think that I'm, when I'm at my best is when I'm truly like a little kid trying to figure out a puzzle. How did you open up the players? I mean, I can imagine walking into a locker room, either as a player and then with the Cardinals as a coach. You talked before about getting to know the players, knowing what motivates them, what they're interested in. How, when you first walked in, how did you open the players up? Like, what was your approach? Because you walk in, there would have been skeptics in any room you walk into. How did you go about opening these guys up? It was different for each one. But personal conversation, hey, how you doing? Investing time in them, really. Little things become big things. Being a really good, consistent human. 
being friendly, inviting conversation, you know, is to realize that they didn't know what to think about me either. So by me being open and, and willing to make them feel comfortable, it, it changes the dynamics. Mm. And, you know, we had a lot in common. Remember, we were all football players. So those guys had as much natural curiosity as I did. I would say I would give, you know, as much credit to them being open to it as I would to something that I did. But it was really being open to the situation and not trying to force things, you know, mm. being natural, being open with them, you know, hey, let's have a conversation. And then the guys would say, oh, my gosh, coach, I watched your game film, you know, and that would be a start of a conversation. So being willing to let it let it evolve. I think too often people try and force things and that and that's the difficulty that they have. We we were introduced together by Carolyn Adams Miller, who wrote the book uh, Getting Grit. And Carolyn wrote to me and said, if you want to know about grit, you need to talk to this lady, Dr. Jen. Where where does your grit come from? You've got this amazing passion and energy that I see in the clips and the stories that I've seen you do. And you've obviously, it's been not an easy road to break into the areas you've broken into with so many firsts that you've had in football in America. Where does this grit resilience come from for Dr. Jen? I think it really comes from having been the underdog for a really long time. You know, I was never the person that they would have looked at and said, oh yeah, you'll be great in professional football. I was continually told what I couldn't, shouldn't, and wouldn't do. And what I would tell anybody in that situation is the only thing you can't, shouldn't, and won't do is listen to them, right? You have to define what your own reality is. You have to be willing to know yourself and maybe the outside critics would and just put your head down and do work. If you invest all of your time into listening what other people's opinions of you are, then they control you, right? You've given away your personal power to the opinions of others. And how can you expect strength if you're contingent on somebody else? You have to find that within yourself. There's a young girl who would have been in the same boat as you starting out, Jen, and they are thinking about business or life or school, university, and they're faced up to they've got this world in front of them that is hard and it's tough and they are faced by those naysayers. What would you say to a young girl as a piece of advice to, to deal with that voice of doubt? Put one foot in front of the other. The voice of doubt usually echoes in your mind when you're looking at the big, big, big picture, right? If I would have just that, if I have, would have had the foresight to, right, even say, I'm going to be the first woman to coach in the NFL. That probably would have had a whole lot of voice of doubt. Yeah. But could I be great in one rep, in one exercise, in one drill, then in one game, and in one moment, right? The moment is always yours, right? You can do something in that moment, in the right now, to get better. And your goal should always be um, a work in progress. If your only win is that big picture goal, then you're losing every day. Right? Oh, I'm not there yet. And there are a lot of people who make themselves very upset on a day-to-day basis because they haven't learned how to win that big picture. Mm. But if you can say, if you can focus on today or in this moment, 
I'm going to be the very best at this drill, or I'm going to catch this pass. And you do that consistently well. Then you don't have time to think. Your mind can literally only hold one thought at a time. So your control literally is in the moment, every moment. And where are you focused? If we if we continue down that path, Jen, the Washington Post said that the biggest question coming in was would the guys in the NFL respond to a woman coaching them? And their response in their article was yes. Was there a particular moment or can you recall a time when you felt as though this is going to work, I can do this, and the players believe I can do this? Was there a particular moment that comes to mind? Thankfully, there were many, right, because it's not every guy. Right, there's not one moment where you say every guy in unison is like, oh yeah, she's welcome, right? But it would be, you know, I remember I was talking to one of the young linebackers about something on special teams, and immediately one of the guys, um, Lorenzo Alexander, who's a, a super vet in the league, you know, his attention just went to him. It's somebody you watched, you admired, and he was like, Joe, so, do you have any advice for me on, you know, what I should be doing? And he said, yeah. She listened to coach right there because everything she told you was right on. <laughs> and it was like, oh my gosh, right? Like lots of little moments like that, that everyone is like, is an amazing moment. And it doesn't mean that you don't have ups and down moments in, in any time you will, but you have to, to build on every one of those good ones. You said playing against the guys taught you a lot about yourself. What did you learn about yourself? You know, I learned that sometimes your advantage is letting somebody else take the lead. And I was used to, as a player, being one of the baddest players out on the field. You know, I was the one who would have everybody's back, set the tone, be that person. Well, when I stepped into men's football, I couldn't be that person anymore. I wasn't the best. I wasn't the biggest or the baddest. And, you know, one of the guys said, the locker room handles itself. You have to let us champion you. Mm -hmm. And he did. And it was a trust factor because he set the tone and said that this is an outsider, not, you know, this is an insider, not an outsider. And we're going to take care of us. But if I would have been the aggressor, if I would have been like, you guys have to blah, 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 then I would have always been fighting that battle. Because why would the guys have my back if, you know, they didn't need me or if I didn't need them? What was the greatest fear going into it, Jenny? They're going into the locker room as coach, uh, running on the field on your first game. In a men male dominated sport, what 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 was the biggest fear that you've personally had to face up to? They're the best in the world, and what could I add? Mm. But it wasn't necessarily a fear; it was a desire to be able to make them better. And I am not somebody who focuses on fear. If you focus on fear, you're always going to be defeated. Right? How can you be a positive addition to a great staff? Right? That's what it was. The coaches in Arizona are great coaches. And could I add something positive 
that's the goal. And it, it is a great stuff and something that I found in reading about you and the Cardinals, they were founded in 1898. They are, in fact, it's, what I read was they're the oldest continuously run professional football team in the States. Given that history and the fact that you were making history walking into the locker room, did that ever play on your mind? Like, did it did it play on your mind or was it a source of motivation for you? You know, I think, again, that's a lot bigger thinker that can be a distraction. I really just tried to focus into the moment of what was going on at the big you know, oh, the Cardinals and the oldest franchise. It was just being good for my players in the moment, right? And doing the best that I could for them because ultimately as a coach, your job is to be great for the people around you. It's not about me. It's about what they can do. When when we see movies about NFL and NFL teams, or we read books about some of the great coaches. It just seems that video and research is a big part of the strategy for any team. And I know that you've talked about you are very learned. What's your process for that, Jen? Where does that fit? And obviously having done psych and having PhDs, you've had to do a lot of study, but what's your own process for learning, analysing and thinking about strategic plans? Well, that would be a long conversation. Um, But I would say as a player, my strategy was always look for the gotchas, right? There's a lot of plays that you just have to know, right? That you'll see week in and week out and you know what your job is. And it might change them to another, but you fundamentally have to know them. What you have to be aware of is when that team will get you to sleep up, like slip up, right? What will they do to throw you out of your game? And what do you have to be aware of? If we think about the great strategic minds or the great thinkers in your sport, who comes to mind for you? Bruce Arians. I think he's a genius. He was a guy who was willing to bring in the first female coach. Mm. Do you stay in touch? All the time. He's one of my favorite people in this world. Mm. What was the greatest lesson he taught you? To read somebody's eyes. Bruce and I are very much alike in that he um, he believes in reading people. And I think that that's what he saw in me. But he is that guy. You know, he's exactly what you want him to be. You may always want, you may always not want to hear what he says, but he's very consistent. You never have a doubt on where you stand with Bruce. He is who he is and he'll tell you what he needs from you. You've seen a great deal of success in what you've done with having a number of firsts in football and now you are working, in fact, in Australia with the Australian Outbacks, which is the first women's national team, and you said that in a minute you're heading off to Canada to work up there. How how do you bring discipline into a team? I think it's focusing on the consistency and the process, not just getting caught up in outcome, Mm. right? It it is consistency of doing the right things over and over and not cutting corners because when you cut corners, that becomes a habit as well. And what what work are you doing with the Aussie team? Like what's your role there as an ongoing position with our team? 
I'm the head coach of the Australian women's national team for the women's world championship. Wow. And are you spending time out here in Australia or is it done online? Well, what we did is my offensive coordinator, John Konecki, and my defensive coordinator, Anthony, have been out to Australia twice. Uh, We went out in 2016 in February and then in 2017 in February as well. And we ran approximately a 10-day camp and selection. And then the rest is done remotely. Just, uh, I'm mindful you've you've got to get on a plane to go to Canada for these championships. There was something that I read which I thought was great, Jen. It said that you kept the first check you ever received as a pro and you never cashed it. And the comment you made was the number was low, but that check was priceless. Why does that check mean so much to you? Because it was the difference between playing for free and getting paid. And that means you're a professional for the first time. I um, I got a quick question for you. I I coach rugby union here in Oz, um, kids rugby union. Um, and on the weekend, yeah. uh, I took 24 awesome under 14 year olds to the state cup here in New South Wales, and the boys won. We came away as state champions. The awesome. big, the biggest reward for me though wasn't the medal around my neck. The biggest reward for me was to see that twenty three guys come together from different teams all over our region um, um, to form the Eastwood team that, that won, and to see the camaraderie that was there by the end of the weekend. Like the example I'm going to give you is we sat down to dinner on the Friday night when we first arrived in Orange, and everyone sat with their own. Like, you know, there was three dual players over here. There was four, you know, um, other players over here. There was three Northern Barbarian players here. By the time we had dinner on Sunday night, which was before the grand final on the Monday, everyone was just sitting with everybody else and laughing and giggling. In fact, they all made a big table, just the players by themselves. What's the biggest reward you've had from coaching? Oh, that's one of them. I mean, especially when you look at a national team, seeing people from, you know, remote areas, right, that had to compete against each other one week and then the next week be teammates, Mm. right? That's a a pretty awesome shift. Mm. But I think that it's always that team camaraderie that comes together despite the diversity. And people see what is different on the outside. Mm. And yet as teammates, we can come together despite it. Yeah. In fact, those differences become strength. And that's what I love about team sport. Yeah. Yeah. Did I? How do you personally define success, Jen? An ongoing quest. I mean, I really do. It's like if you get caught up on something that you did, then what are you going to do? Stop at life. It should always be a work in progress. And where's that going to go for you now? So is your desire now to remain in coaching and coach like the Australian team? Is that kind of what you, are you planning to go back into the NFL at some point? Like what, what, what are the future dreams for you? My future dreams are to remain curious and to take up the challenges as they come. Mm. So you guys will just have to wait and see. (laughs) Um, I did just write my first book. It's coming out in October called Play Big. So that was a grueling yet fun process. And I'm excited to 
see where that leads, you know. If you're looking for new challenges, there's a spot for you at the under 14A Northern Barbarian squad here in Sydney if you're interested. Yes. <laughs> We'd welcome you with open arms, honestly. Uh, you know, I love it over in Australia. I really do. I have guys who um, I know from the league, whether they're the child or cut. And now I'm like the go to girl. They're like, Coach, I want to go to Australia. Can I come with you? Right. I'm sure we can figure something out. So if we need to put together a big NFL adventure, we could do that. Well, well, hey, if you're in Sydney, look us up. Right. Well, Jen, we know you've got to get to Canada for the championships. We really appreciate your time. Thanks for stopping at the Mojo Radio Show and we will be watching your journey. Look forward to having a coffee with you out here soon. Absolutely. Thanks, guys, so much. Mojo Radio Show. We don't take ourselves too seriously. Oh, thank God. So all this talk about football and women made me think of meeting a unicorn in a pub in Auckland about a year or so ago. (laughs) Rugby has definitely impacted me around resilience and grit, both on and off the field. Uh, You know, every day in sport, we learn these lessons, right? So the first five calls a play and the play is to run a 2-3 switch. And instead of running the 2-3 switch, somebody drops the ball or all of a sudden the backfield opens up and we decide to kick. Well, in that moment, that play isn't on anymore and we need to, um, we need to readjust to what is, what is actually in front of us, whether it's a drop ball, you know, or whether it's an interception or something. And I notice when we, you know, when we make mistakes on the field and we get down on ourselves, well, life and the game just gets a little bit harder. But when we make mistakes on the field and we say, okay, reset, let's go, uh, get the ball back, having that mindset really helps us continue to succeed and win. You know, anybody can win on a good day. Anybody can win when they're feeling good, but it's coming back from behind and winning when, you know, winning when you're not feeling so good that I think really shows the character of the people and the team. <laughs> That's a classic. I know. It's one of those things I'll never forget, I'll be honest. So- that was episode 107 with a lady called Andrea Burke, who has become a good mate at the show, a Canadian rugby union player, a female rugby union player, and at the highest level, and uh, world acclaimed, who's now a commentator. But um, the backstory is that uh, Robbo, doing his research for the Mojo radio show, <laughs> went pub hopping in New Zealand. <laughs> it was all about research, and, uh, of course. And bumped into a unicorn. Andrew was there dressed up as a unicorn, apparently. She was indeed. In fact, um, her and her mates were all dressed up in onesies. But um, the uh, the interesting thing is I was talking to her just recently and she'll be out here soon and um, she may she may suit up for a game with the Withered Oaks. Well, there you go. We'll need some photo, <laughs> we'll need some photo evidence of that. Some, some and photo ops. you'll be crying in your orange pits <laughs> after that game, I can tell you. Well, I won't be, but the other teams will. He's the sweetheart of the stem cell, the enemy of the antigen. Look, up in the sky, it's a bird. It's a plane. On the Mojo Radio Show, it's Smithy. All right, it's time to ask Smithy. Now, this segment is a new segment on the show. This segment is where we take letters from the mailbag or emails or texts or comments in the street from people who listen to the show who want to know something about wellness or health or anything to do with energy, feeling good, what we consume, what we don't, what we shouldn't consume. And our good mate, Michael Smith, he's our go-to doc. We call him doc. We, we actually know him as Smithy. <laughs> mate, um, this week we're talking vitamin D. We had a letter from somebody about vitamin, that sounds old, doesn't it? We had an email from somebody about vitamin D. Can we uh, see if we can hook up with Smithy and Absolutely. get him on the line? Let's see. I wonder what time it is in Vancouver. Hang on. 
Hello, it's Michael from Planet Naturopath. Hey, Smitty. Smitty. Hey. Uh, it's you guys again. I thought I recognised you. <laughs> I told you. You're a, seg- you're a segment now, mate. You're uh, you're going to be a regular. He won't answer the phone soon. He'll see it and go, oh, geez, I'm not here. <laughs> yeah, I'll put that one on uh, the special category. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Blocked caller Blocked. list. <laughs> now, Smithy, we're not going to hold you up. I got approached during the week by somebody who said, what's the story on vitamin D? So... I just thought, well, rather than us make something up, we should just ring you and ask you about vitamin D. Start me off, mate. Vitamin D, why do I do I need it? Is it essential part of what I should be thinking about for my health and wellness? Well, is it essential? Absolutely. Pretty much every cell in the body has a receptor for vitamin D, so everybody needs it. But whether you need to take extra of it, that depends on a lot of different factors. Have you been tested for vitamin D? Well, no, that's an interesting thing. So if, if we say, yes, it's essential, then somebody goes, do I need to have, how much, do I have enough? How, how do I find out if I have enough or not? Well, there's several different tests for vitamin D, but you can, the, the main, there's one main test where you just go and get your vitamin D measured. And I recommend people do it at the end of winter and at the end of summer. And because you want to make sure that you're adequate at both ends of the, uh, of the, of the seasons. And so you, in Australia, you go along and the level should be between optimally between 100 and 150 nanomoles per litre when the sweet spots are like 100 to 125. So if someone is, you know, 50, 60, 70, they're going to be deficient more likely. And if someone's under 50, they're definitely deficient. And is that through just a blood test, Smithy? Is that we go into our normal doctors? Is that on the normal blood panel or is it a specific test we need to ask for? It's not on the normal blood panel and a lot of doctors don't test for it because they get Medicare restrictions on testing for vitamin D. Mm. But you can ask for it from your doctor and a lot of them say, oh, we won't worry about testing for that because most people are deficient, But which is... But not knowing how deficient you are doesn't give you the answer to know how much you should take as a supplement. And just on that, one thing that I hear a lot when I am listening to other health experts on podcasts or on blogs and so on, they talk about the measurements. You said between 100 and 150 millimolars per litre. Is that an international standard? Because what happens is quite often I hear a podcast and people say your magnesium levels should be between. I pull out my blood tests and they they just the numbers don't seem to match up. Are there different markers by territory of the world? Uh, different markers by territory of US. So if you're listening to some US show, their measurement's going to be different to the rest of the world. Yeah. So we're not the old ones out. That's the US. Yeah. So... The optimal range in the US is 40 to 60. And so people might hear that and then they get their test done and they find out in Australia that they're 60 and they think they're fine. But because it's nanomoles or litre, it's a different measurement and they're actually deficient. Smithy, I know I need it. If I've been and had my test done, I now know whether I have adequate or if I'm short. Where do I get it? Do, is, is, is it only a supplement thing? We get it from the sun. That's the that's the you know that's how people have got it for years and years before supplements came along. You can all get it also get it from some foods, um, mainly like fatty fish or cod liver oil. There's a small amount in you know pasture raised beef, eggs, 
and you know, some foods are fortified with vitamin D, but the main thing is is sun or supplements. And but a lot of people these days they don't get much sun or they cover up all day. Uh, or if you're overweight, you're not absorbing as much vitamin D from the sun. So there's a lot of different variables on why people may not be absorbing it from the sun these days. So say there is someone listening who is in. So say they've done the test. They're in. They're in a good place, and they are. They have adequate vitamin D. There's also somebody listening who has under vitamin D, and it's been said that the majority of our population is under on vitamin D. They are sitting on a bus listening to this show and they say, great, as of today, today is day one, I'm going to get my vitamin D in order via the sun. How much, how much do I need? What time of the day do I need to go out? Do I need to be completely naked to get the vitamin B raised into my system? <laughs> and how long would it take for me to get my vitamin D levels up to an adequate range of a healthy range if I'm starting behind the eight ball, if I'm using the sun. Like it's, I'm, I'm always curious about this because in Australia we're told to slip, slop, slap. We have this massive you know, melanoma issue. So I'm curious to know in Australia, our home territory and also around the world, how do I get the sun? How much do I need? And how much do I need before I can actually go from being deficient into having adequate so the key, the key with the sun is it's really important not to get burnt because that or pink because that will start to have more negative effects. But you only need about fifteen minutes of sun. But ideally, in that sort of middle time of the day, between you know eleven and three, in the middle of the day. So yeah, fifteen minutes would be enough for most people. But most people aren't out in the sun. There's a few other variables there too. Some people just don't absorb vitamin D from the sun very well, and there's a genetic you know, VDR gene that can affect that. So, which, which my wife actually has that. So, she, even when she was driving boats on the Great Barrier Reef, she her vitamin D levels were deficient, so she had to supplement to get up. So, some people, there's genetic reasons why they may need supplements all the time. And even if you're getting that sun, there's other genetic reasons where it may not be converted from vitamin D into the active form of vitamin D. So, do I got to be naked? <laughs> Uh, the more skin you show, the better. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. Oh, this is going to be awful. This is going to be awful. Gary, go find a quiet for- corner of the no, farm somewhere, no, please. No, okay. no, Robbo's already, Robbo's already <laughs> taking his shirt off. That Divinals T-shirt's going. Um, okay, so the more just skin, wearing your, the better. Uh, sing- just, wearing a, just wearing a singlet or something like that, having your arms or legs exposed would be enough. Okay. Say genetically... I don't have a disposition to not take in vitamin D. So say I'm a person who can benefit from the sun. If I am deficient, how long is it likely to take? Like how much do we take in, Smithy? Is this something that you can fix in a week? Is it two weeks? Is it something where you're you going to do it? For? I mean, I, I don't understand how I take a supplement. They say take 30 days by 1,000 milligrams a day. You'll get to a point where your body will absorb it. How does it work with the sun? What's the period of time we need to be out there to start to see some benefit to our vitamin D levels via a blood panel? Once again, it's going to depend on how low your levels are. If they're moderately low, you should be able to see a significant improvement in one to two months of getting 15 minutes a day in around the middle of the day, running around your singlet. What if it's overcast? Or what if you're wearing sunscreen would be the other one I would throw in there. Uh, the sunscreen will definitely block the UVB rays, so that'll that'll reduce your ability to absorb vitamin D. And the sun also reduces your ability by about 
And same with pollution. So if you're living in a polluted place, that's going to affect vitamin D absorption. Okay. So out in the sun, no sunscreen, no pollution. Is that what we're saying? Yeah, and, and, and not getting burnt. So you don't, if you're very pale, you might want to do it. You might want to be out there for five minutes because getting burnt, you know, affects the increased risk of skin cancer. It actually affects the uh, absorption of the vitamin D as well. So mm. getting baked like a lobster is not going to send your vitamin D levels through the roof. Right. Good advice. Is an overcast day going to make a difference, Smithy? Am I reducing the amount of vitamin D if it's a cloudy day? Yeah, it reduces that by about 50%. Okay. All right. Can I store it? You can, you can store vitamin D. So that's why people often build up to a really good level by the end of summer and then it'll reduce down in winter when they're not getting as much vitamin D. That's why it's good to check at the end of summer and the end of winter because you want to make sure that you've still got adequate levels at the end of winter. Now, uh, before we got you on the line uh, in the studio, Rob, I was talking about vitamin D and Crohn's. Mate, you were going to ask Smithy about that, weren't you? Yeah, look, I've, I've been reading a couple of studies here and there about higher doses of vitamin D for people who who are suffering Crohn's. Can you speak to that at all? Yeah, so people with Crohn's will often have trouble digesting fats and you need fat to absorb vitamin D. So there's a big connection there. There's a big connection with like people who have Crohn's or autoimmune conditions, uh, multiple sclerosis. They have a higher demand for vitamin D as well, so they actually need more. So it's whenever I test people for vitamin D who have these sort of chronic health conditions, they're often really low. Okay, so if I had a blood panel done, and specifically for me, I'm going to be selfish here, but specifically for me, if I was looking for where my level should be, what would you recommend? Or for anyone with any of those conditions that you just mentioned? What what should the optimal range for you be? Yeah, should it, I mean, should it be higher than normal? Obviously it should. Where would you suggest it should be for people with those conditions? So it should be in that minimum of, a, should be in that 100 to 150 range. Okay. And if you've got those sort of chronic conditions, probably in that upper, you know, in that 120 even to 150 range. Okay, so still within the normal range but at the higher end of it. Is that what we're saying? Yeah, because there's actually negative effects of having too much vitamin D. So some people read about, you know, how fantastic vitamin D is and think, you know, more is better. Mm. But excess vitamin D will lead to more uh, calcium in the blood, which will lead to kidney stones, uh, cardiovascular disease. So there's there's long-term negative effects. Right. Okay. Good to know. And the thing with short-term vitamin D, you could have a vitamin D deficiency and not even know about it because the body's really good at compensating and some of these effects may not show up for years down the track. Smithy, just just on that, that's that's a very interesting conundrum in my mind because you've just said that too much vitamin D can convert too much calcium into the bloodstream, which can end up being a disease in whatever form. And it's said that, you know, vitamin D deficiencies can lead into different diseases like multiple sclerosis and heart disease and diabetes and so on. You're also saying that too much can lead to cardiovascular disease and some other things. What about people who work outside all day? Yeah, so you, you can't get too much vitamin D from the sun. So the body will self-regulate that. But if you supplement with vitamin D, and these days you can buy really high-dose vitamin D supplements online, that's the only way you can get your levels up. So, yeah, if you're riding around the farm on horseback, you're not going to get over, overdosed on vitamin D. No bareback riding, Bert. That's all <laughs> good to know. Well, Smithy, that's been, uh, that's been awesome, mate. I think that's cleared it up for all of us. 
Quick question, Smithy. If people, being the digital nomad that you are, living on Vancouver Island, you are working with people all over the world, you told us off air. Uh, people who want to get a hold of Smithy, where do you send them? Uh, to the, my website's probably the best place to go. That's planetnaturopath.com. So you can find out articles, you can schedule consultations, and I offer a lot of more detailed functional pathology testing. So if someone is, is actually with vitamin D, if they're concerned if they've got enough, other tests you can do are things like parathyroid hormone and calcitriol, which is the active version of vitamin D. So you can do more advanced levels of testing for vitamin D that the doctors don't do to see if you really are deficient. Because people with darker skin, they don't need as much vitamin D as, say, people with uh, white skin. So it's going to vary from person to person. If there was somebody, just to finish up, so say Rubbo and I want to check our vitamin D levels, we would go into a, I guess we'd go to a doctor or would we go to a pathology laboratory? What panel, what blood test should we ask for specifically that would cover off vitamin D so that we could get the results to send to a specialist like you to diagnose and give us some suggestions? Like how do we how do we do the that? first test would be just to get vitamin D tested because you should be able to get that done for free from your doctor. But if someone, some people are always supplementing with vitamin D, but their levels aren't that high. So the only way to really know if they've got good levels is to do some of these more advanced tests like parathyroid hormone, calcitriol, and that will tell us if you're actually absorbing the vitamin D, converting into the active form, and whether you need to increase the supplementation or not. So those types of more advanced testing, I I organise organize those for clients. Smithy, thank you so much, mate. You're a wealth of knowledge. There is gold in them, their vitamin D tablets. We thank you for your time again, mate. That was awesome. Really, uh, that was very, very helpful. Absolutely. You know what we no could worries, ac- guys. You know what we could actually say? We could actually say we were delighted to talk to you today. <laughs> yes, we could if we were full of cliches <laughs> and one of those shows, but we're not, so let's not. <laughs> Thanks, Smitty. We'll see ya. The Mojo Radio Show. Oh, he's just full of information as usual, isn't he? Love Smithy. Do love Smithy. What an awesome job he does, eh? He just makes us sound awfully cleverer. <laughs> he does, doesn't he? <laughs> mm, I do. He does. He just makes, he just adds a whole, whole bunch of credibility yeah. to an otherwise rudderless ship. It, but, it's in, but it's interesting to know about vitamin D, isn't it? I mean, all the talk these days is about skin cancer and covering up and all the rest of it. But it's, I think it's important to know that we actually do need at least a certain amount of sunlight you know, in our lives. Mm. The Mojo Radio Show. Pop quiz, hot shot. All right, we haven't done one of these for a while. Time for a pop quiz, hot shot. <laughs> What's the lesson of rock behind this track? It's a beautiful day. Besides it being an absolutely awesome kick-ass track. Um, wear glasses. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I don't know. You're the expert, and it's a pop quiz. You could keep, keep waiting for you to give me the answer. Actually, this is going to be this is going to be a long bow. But if I'm going to have a crack, uh, who you do produced have to have that a crack? Who produced that track? Oh, of course, the legendary Brian Eno. So Brian Eno 
keeps a a file, like a playlist of rough drafts mm. in his computer. Mm. And last count, when I read this blog about Brian Eno, the journalist said he had 4,412 tracks. Wow. And he said what he does, he goes back, listens to a kernel of an idea and he goes, yeah, that might be good or it's not very good. And if he doesn't like it, he just turns it off and walks away. Mm. And... The thing I took from Brian Eno, and this is a tenuous link between Brian Eno and that song, although he did produce it, is that his his quote that I recall, he said, perhaps part of the genius is knowing when to give up on a ho-hum idea and move on. Mm. And I think that's the beauty of journaling, whether you've got it in a book of a journal, whether you've got it like you would have as a sound effect file on your computer or Mm. an iTunes playlist, but when you're looking for inspiration, you need to have a repository of some sort you can go to and just check in, think about some stuff. And if it's not any good, you don't love it, walk away from it. Like Elton John used to walk away from tracks after 30 or 35 minutes. If you, he said, I never draw blood from a stone. So it's a tenuous link, but I like that quote. Perhaps part of the genius is knowing when to give up on a ho-hum idea and move on. That's also part of the challenge is knowing what's ho-hum and what's what's worth pushing through on. But mm. To me, the lesson is all about the journaling part of it and having a repository for it. You know, the other interesting thing is we could probably take a lesson from that as well. (laughs) (laughs) Probably. So, uh, should we play out with Beautiful Day? Oh, what else? We're out. The heart is a blue Shoots up through the stony ground There's no room No space to rent in this town Traffic is stuck And you're not moving anywhere You thought you'd found a friend To take you out of this place Someone you could lend a hand In return for grace So beautiful Clearing the sea out See the bedroom fires at night
Radio Show is produced and recorded in the studios of Voodoo Sound. For more tips and tools to get your mojo working, check us out on Facebook at the Mojo Radio Show or online at themojoradioshow.com. For more about Gary, see garybertwhistle.com or to polish your next audio or video production, check out voodoosound.com.au and for the right voice, realtimecasting.com. Andrew Peter speaking. See you next time.